But now is the hour to believe. Dare greatly to believe. Start a new business. Become more virtuous. What are the practices we can put into place to make myself more, to move forward, to aspire and do great things? We can do great things. None of this is over. Never is. That's the spirit of the thing, that it looks like it's over. That's when we just get started. That's what I see. I see this thing overall, this exiled one, as two things. One, as an overarching symbol. What it does is it's a compilation of um, symbols and metaphors that open up your frame, right? Because you can't see outside your own understanding. Like you're feasting, things are good. You're in the epoch of the Greenwood, not the epoch of the dragon, right? But it gives you enough experiences that you know a bit of that. You know a bit of sorrow. You understand a bit of when something's gone terrible, like you've, you've experienced loss, right? So when you have enough of these metaphors together, put together poetically in this verse, it opens up your frame window of what it would be like to have all of those things go terribly wrong, to lose everything, and have no one, right? And so you, you feel it. It opens this perspectival window, right? This is what great symbols do, what great icons do. Um, and this is the, the use of um, reading this sort of stuff is it opens you up to what that era would be like. Uh, I feel it when I read it. So read it to yourself. Like, read it. I'll link it in the description. But read it and think about it in the terms of your life, right? Often the solitary dweller awaits favor for himself, the mercy of the Lord. Although he, anxious in spirit, has long been obliged to stir with his hands the ice-cold sea over the paths of the waters, to travel the paths of exile. Fate or weird is utterly inexorable. So spoke the wanderer, mindful of hardships, of cruel slaughters, of the death of blooded kinsmen. Often, alone, each dawn, I have had to bewail my sorrows. There is not now anyone living to whom I dare speak my mind openly. In truth, I know that it is the very noble custom in a man that he should bind fast his mind, guard that treasury of his heart, let him think as he will. One wary in spirit cannot resist fate or weird or toward Ragnarok, nor can the troubled thought afford consolation. Therefore, those eager for glorious reputation often bind fast in their hearts gloomy thought. So I, often wretched, deprived of my native land, far from my noble kinsmen, have had to bind my mind with fetters. Since that time, years ago, when I hid in the concealment of the earth, my gold friend, the generous lord, and I, abject, winter grieving, rent from there over the surface of the waves, wretched. I sought the dwelling of a dispenser of treasure, of a ring-giver, of another another place of meaning, another, another hearth, another hall. I sought where I might be able to find far or near someone who, in a meat hall, might know my people, might be willing to console me, a friendless one, an exile, comfort me with pleasures. He who experiences it knows how cruel is sorrow as a companion to him who has few friendly protectors for himself. The path of exile attends him, not twisted gold, a mournful spirit, not earthly prosperity. He remembers the warriors in the hall and the receiving of treasures, how in his youth his ring-giver, his gold friend, entertained him at feasting. Joy has all disappeared. Therefore he must know how to do without the instructed speeches of his beloved friendly lord for a long time, when sorrow and sleep together often bind the wretched solitary one. It seems to him in his mind that he is embracing and kissing his lord and laying his hands and head on his knee, as he sometimes formerly in the days of yore 
enjoys the gifts through. Then the friendless man awakens again and sees before him the dark waves. Sea birds bathe and spread their wings. Hoarfrost and snow fall mingled with hail. Then the wounds of the heart are the more severe, painful with longing for the loved one. Sorrow is renewed when the memory of kinsmen passes from the mind. He greets them joyfully, eagerly regards his comrades in arms. Then they float away again. The spirits of the floating ones, the phantoms, does not bring their many familiar songs. Care is renewed for him who must very often send forth his weary spirit over the surface of the waves. Therefore I cannot imagine why throughout this world my mind will not grow gloomy when I consider all the life of men, how they suddenly left the hall, the courteous young retainers. So this world every day is crumbling and falling. Therefore a man cannot become wise before he has his portion of years and youth. A wise man must be patient, nor must he be too hasty in speech, nor too weak a warrior, nor too reckless, nor too fearful, nor too elated, nor too avaricious, nor ever too eager for glory before he really knows. A man must wait when he makes a vow until bold-spirited. He really knows whither the thought of his heart will turn. A clever man ought to realize how terrible it will be when all the wealth of this world stands waste. As now variously throughout the world, walls stand windblown, covering with hoarfrost the dwellings of storm-beaten. The wine halls are crumbling, the rulers lie dead, deprived of revelry. All the band of warriors has fallen proudly by the wall. War destroyed some and carried them away. A bird carried one off over the high sea. The grey wolf shared one with death. A sad-faced man hid one in a grave. Thus the creator of men laid waste the dwelling place until the old works of giants stood vacant without the noise of inhabitants. He then thoughtfully, wisely reflected upon this place of ruins and profoundly meditates upon this sad life, wise in heart. He often remembers many slaughters in battle far back in time and speaks these words. Where has the horse gone? Where has the warrior gone? Where has the giver of treasure gone? Where have the banquet seats gone? Where are the revelries in the hall? Alas, bright cup, alas, armoured warrior, alas, princely splendour. How the time has passed away, grown dark under cover of night, as if it had never been. Now the wall, wondrously high, decorated with serpent designs, outlasts the beloved band of warriors. The forces of Ashwood spears destroyed the warriors, weapons greedy for slaughter, and fate or weird that famed one and storms beat upon those stone walls a driving snowstorm binds the earth the howling of winter when it comes shadow of night grows dark sends forth the north a fierce hailstorm to the vexation of men all the kingdom of earth is full of hardships the decree of the fates changes the world under the heavens here wealth is transitory here friend is transitory here man is transitory here kinsman is transitory. This whole foundation of earth is becoming empty. So spoke the man wise in spirit, sat apart in secret meditation. Good is he who keeps his pledges, nor ought a man ever make known the grief from out his breast too quickly, unless he, the man, should know beforehand how to bring about a remedy with fortitude. It will be well for him who seeks grace for himself, comfort from the Father in heaven where for us is all security. 
It's important to understand, too, this represents an epoch of what I call the epoch of the dragon. Uh, the next epoch is the epoch of the green world, which we're currently in, right? But the epoch of the dragon, as this represents, it's moving towards the snake winning, right? To Ragnarok and the snake destroying everything, the dragon, right? And that's what's being experienced, too, by the people. The dragon comes from the seas. Like the Vikings actually had their, their uh, boats had dra- the, the snake or the dragon at the front of them, right? So literally, that's coming from everywhere to the ruin of the people. But the strength of this idea, though, this bleak heroic necessity, if you are of this cosmology, because that's the natural order of things, if you're in like a Mediterranean situation in their moral order, and you see this like Rome falling, right? That's not the natural order of things. So what this situation strikes you is nihilistic if you're in that worldview. Even then suddenly everything doesn't even feel real. You're, it's all almost like a dream. Everything is just completely upset. There's no meaning. Nothing's worth doing, right? And you're just immediately going into decline, collapse in that worldview, right? So it's all falling apart for you. And you're like cursing the, cursing the word, like everything that was said in, in my narrative order and how I'm thinking about things is not occurring. It's not true, like, right? It's demoralizing. It's demoralizing in that worldview to have it all falling around you because in that cosmology, the gods are supposed to win, right? Cut back to the old English, same situation. Oh, this is exactly how things are supposed to be. I know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. This is the narrative order. We know the battle plan. We know that you just implicitly think about it in the cosmological order, right? Nothing's absurd here. So everything's real. The values are known. But the power in this, this cosmology is that when that's occurring, there's, a, there's, there's the understanding, this is the natural order of things, that you'll just fight to the bitter, bloody uh, end in bleak situation. And that's how things are supposed to be in a way, right? That's the weird, the fate going, the, the water running in the river, as is mentioned in the later poem. It can, it can be diverted and such, right? But it's going towards that in the end. It's moving towards it. And you can only do a certain amount of things to, to stave it off. But yeah, so that's, that's considering in that situation, that's the difference between the monsters at the center with the monsters winning. And the advantages of having that worldview is that you're not experiencing the nihilism of that. At least that is, that's a solace. And you feel that when you read this and you're considering this narrative order uh, compared to what you're experiencing uh, perhaps now, in the, uh, perhaps people feel in America that things are sort of dissolving. As Americans and English people, uh, Australians, Canadians, this is deep in your, in your nested in your, uh, in your procedural hierarchy, in the behaviors that you've inherited down the chain from your father to son, father to son, daughter to mother to daughter. It's nested in that stuff. So particularly when you have that value hierarchy, it is a solace when you look at it. When you read it, it gives you that, that sense of actually, it doesn't depress you. This kind of reminds you of perhaps a thing in the past of, of behaviors that you might have had. It's, oh, that's why I felt that way, right? Really extremely connected to the cosmology in the sense that with, with the Ragnarok being the defeat, it could not better epitomize it because it's showing a living situation, right? Not just the final battle and the loss, but living in the loss, right? Like This is what happens to you if you run and survive. Right. Or if everyone's killed and you survive. So it's putting it in the context of how you'll feel, not just that's the battle and you all die and it's over and you go to Valhalla, but like the post that, the post that, the post the annihilation. Like, here's what it's like 
right? So it's even more powerful in that sense as a window to that mythos or the cosmology as it relates to the final defeat. As Because you don't see that in the sagas either, even though, of course, this, that's, they're related to the Old English, but of course that isn't the exact... Uh, that isn't the exact cosmology. It's only related. But we know enough from the text we've seen that it's the same worldview, the same defeat that's in the works, the same sorrow that you see in this, this idea that the world always flows towards the eventual decay and defeat of the snake winning is that it's, it's connected in all the sort of Northwestern um, peoples, right, in this early pagan um, cosmology. Comfort from the Father in heaven or the Maker where for us is all security. That part the, that is showing it, it's a repeating of the same sort of thing. Like all the things you wanted, they without the people there, the re- things that are really valuable, they're nothing. They're just, they age like anything and they're destroyed. They're dissolving in time and in the cold and in the hail and in the rain. That's what's left from desiring that sort of stuff. And it seems to repeat that as it goes. Alas, the warrior, alas, alas, the princely splendor, how that time has passed away and grown dark under cover of night. It's not just like an, it's not like an elegy. I think it's making the comparison of like what you thought before the, the end or before the Ragnarok came, the annihilation is completely different. And it's suggesting you question that's what Stoics do. Like, I know it seems to me it's no coincidence because it involves direct questions asking himself like why else is that there but it's true psychologically right you should perform you should perform this imaginal exercise yourselves and see if see the benefits of it is it using this too like reading it back to yourself and seeing the symbols through this context um of the annihilation of everything being removed all the things you're chasing right because you're busy chasing war because you're busy chasing glory and you lose these great things imagine them dying imagine losing it Go through this exercise. Use this as a metaphor for that. And then also do what he's saying. Like ask these questions to yourself. Uh, where has the warrior gone? Like, okay, I'm in this imaginary situation. Where's the all my friends that defend me? Like, where they're gone. Where are they? They're dead. What happened to them? Imagine, where has the giver of treasure gone? Where have the banquet seats gone? Where are the reveries in the hall? And look at all your environment and the objects you're chasing, the money see them as empty with everyone dead you imagine yourself in the same situation and i give you a perspectival understanding that's that's what this gives as a story as a narrative order and as a participatory thing that you can enact by asking yourself the same questions like a stoic might or like socrates might as well so one worry in spirit cannot resist fate or nor can the troubled thought afford consolation or i'm like this is interesting like a man troubled in thought that's sort of like if you're in psychologically speaking, if you're in this state, you can't afford it, right? Because the risks are so high because everything is stepping out at you and you've got no resources left. You have no one to outsource like, your cognitive burdens to, right? You can't afford. If you're weary in spirit, you can't resist anything. You can't, that's what I was talking about earlier, the grim, bleak, heroic necessity. It has no spirit to go off. You have, you need... You can't perform anyone help, right? Because your your chamber of spirit is empty. Often bind fast in their hearts a gloomy thought. Yeah, if you're eager to sort of improve your position, you don't like you're binding fast in your heart a gloomy thought. You're you're not sharing it because it's a risk, right? Because if you 
if you're constantly talking about whoa, no one wants to be around you, and you don't have a, a cherished one to share your uh, that you can trust enough to tell your troubles to, that won't uh, jettison you when you're someone that is uh, experiencing a bad situation. Whereas when you can't trust anyone, you don't have that. So therefore, he must know how to do without the instructive speeches of his beloved, friendly Lord for a long time. This was really interesting. This verse, in the sense of, is that if you invert it, here's a, it's giving you advice of what like you must know how to do this thing. Uh, this is your preparation for when the Ragnarok comes, when the annihilation comes, right? I guess you could consider this Socrates. He must know how to internalize, right? To ask these questions of himself, um, the instructive speeches to sort of, to ask himself these questions, to work it out himself. So he really knows whether the thoughts of his heart will turn. Right. And I think all this segment of enormous he, this is related to what he's saying earlier, right? It's like the courageous young retainers. He's talking about there what they shouldn't have done earlier. The courageous young, they jumped into things, right? They jumped into war, for instance. That's what this constantly seems to refer to, right? And you can you get that when you read the next sentences where he's saying when too eager for glory, that's the context of it. It's like when I think of the young people who leapt into this without the prudence of considering the golden mean, right? Of considering the ratioality or rationality, rationed uh, and wisdom, learning the practices of wisdom before they made these irreversible decisions. He often remembers many slaughters and battles far back in time and speaks these words. See, it's kind of recommending that, right? Meditating on it and speaking these words. I think, I think that's kind of a practice, right? It's like what happened? It's considering what happened and considering what, uh, what you could do. Now Aldi has these wisdom practices to deal with the experience and gain insight. Or at least it's recommending that the situation is to be avoided. How the time has passed away, grown dark under cover of night, as if it had never been. Right? This is so stoic. If you were to do this, just think about it into a, into a practice. You're considering all the things. It's like how they were brought to life. All the meaning we ascribe to them, right? It's separate from the, the future time when everything is annihilated. It's just walls and empty and hail and cold and winter. And this is drawing a distinction, asking these questions, right? Even if it's just implicit and you took it, that's the benefits you get are just like the stoic benefits, the practices that they promote. I see this. Okay. The Ashwood spears destroy the warriors. Weapons greed you for slaughter. Fate. That famed. I see that sort of as the desire for, it's like the desire for war destroyed the warriors. It's like the desire for war and fame. Tolkien talks about um, the purity of this value and its great heroic and its nobility. It's, it's gold when it doesn't involve um, chivalry or the desire for personal glory, right? It's, it's, that's where it's co-opted and tainted that are about the ego rather than um, the nobility of just doing it because it's what you do when faced with the end. How do you act when you're faced with your death, when no one's watching? That's the gold, noble nature of bleak heroic necessity. It seems to me that when he's talking about the Ashwood Spears, that's what destroyed the war it is, that uh, it, it uh, tempted this value and tainted it and made it unnoble. He who deeply considers with wise thoughts this foundation and this dark life, old in spirit, often remembers, like wise, often remembers so many ancient slaughters and says these words, right? It's a recommendation. It's like a philosophical recommendation uh, with wise thoughts. Like, why else is it wise? 
he who is wise remembers these things and asks these questions to think of the darkness in that stoic sense. But I'll go on. A torrent of spears took away the warriors, bloodthirsty weapons, weird the mighty. Right. Again, it's like this reference towards, ah, this fate, this weird, is sneaking towards of this annihilation. That's the moral order. That's narrative order. It can't be stopped, right? It, you must see it, see it coming, and value the things while you have them. Here, wealth is fleeting. Here, friends are fleeting. Here, man is fleeting. Here, woman is fleeting. All the security of this earth will stand empty. So said the wise one in his mind, sitting apart in meditation. He is good who keeps his word, right? Those statements are, are sort of uh, bookmarked or bookended with that. Like, so thinks the wise man, so said the wise man. Here, after annihilation, after this battle, after this, uh, after everything is done, right? After you lose, if you survive, here a man is fleeting, here a woman is fleeting. All the security of this earth will stand empty. Remember that. He's saying, remember that. Remember that, because it's coming, no matter what. That's the narrative order of the whole thing. It's like a prediction of the future and asking you, to, telling you to meditate on it like a stoic, to ask these questions, to consider that, and you'll be wise if you do. Do those practices, and you should, we should, think about your death, think about the coming end of all things. Not all the time, but in a regular practice, and you'll be awakened to the value of things, right? I think it also awakens you too, is that post-Ragnarok, post-annihilation, when your whole meaning-making community has been annihilated, it doesn't have the spirit anymore, the fuel that it needs, right? There's like You might consider this like after Nazi takeover and everything's annihilated. <laughs> Britain, for instance. It's like the fuel of that thing, when the, it's like when you destroy the hearth at the center of the house, even bleak heroic necessity can't be fueled, right? And this, it's like the deep sorrow is there. And he talks about this in the lines like he's asleep, he sees his comrades, but these memories are horrific. So it's like you think post-annihilation, you'll be okay, right? Because you're, everything's so good now, you'll be okay. But no, when you lose everything, all those great memories that now seem to be the hearth and wellspring, when everybody's dead, when the entire culture's dead, when everything's removed, they'll haunt you. They, they will invert and become a phantom and haunt you. <laughs> And uh, you'll wake, and it will actually torture you every time you wake. This makes psychological sense when you look at that. They die all over again, like your comrades and all these things you loved and the spirit of their songs, right? The song is kind of like the spirit of their emotional presence. I see that as a metaphor for that. That's kind of interesting. When you have this worldview, this sort of, you might be offered the slaver's chains, but saying I'll die in a bloody mess on the ground before I surrender, like Churchill talks of, right? If you don't have, not of this value set, you might look at that and go, these, these people are irrational. But if you have a connection to this, uh, this grim, bleak, heroic necessity, this Ragnarok, this kind of worldview that comes from this Epoch of the Dragon that I talk about, then you, it's the most rational thing in the world to you to do that. From the outside, do they go, why are they like, this is a rational just surrender, just surrender, like, no, fucking never, right? Because that's the most, that sounds irrational, right? Oh, they could still survive and do all that. But to them, with the cosmology of <laughs> Ragnarok, with this cosmology, the power of that is that this is the most natural thing on earth for the river of weird or fate to lead towards the apocalypse in Ragnarok of the loss. Of course, we'll never surrender. 
right? Of course we'll never surrender. That's the that's the narrative order. That's how we operate. Like that's the most that's the highest good at this point, right? That's the that's what we're supposed this is how things are supposed to be. Right. Whereas if it's other cultures, they other cultures might uh, would surrender in that moment. But when you try, when you're when you when you put people of that kind of culture against the wall, yeah, you might have some people that do. But what the Battle of Maldon also represents is that the majority of them don't, right? Because of that, because it's so deep in the understanding of where the world's going. Like it's all is right in the world with in battle in these great battles. If things are going wrong it's all all is right in the world if you're endlessly resisting it then it's right right because this is going wrong that's yes that's supposed to happen and we naturally go to this fight to resist it right that's so everything is right in that worldview even though it seems like things are going wrong it's right and good in terms of the narrative i mean i know when i to, i in my own life i look back right in in the context of understanding what bleak heroic necessity is and also this understanding this world order there were times when I had like uh, enormous amounts of work went into these funding tenders that went into things, right? And year after year, I got turned down. And for something triggered in me, it was like, oh, well, this is just the natural order of things that I am supposed to be sort of turned down. Oh, next time it'll be at 120%. And the next time after that, it'll be 130%. The next time, it'll, right? And you can kind of see a reflection in that, in that line from Battle of Maldon, which is uh, uh, heart grows stronger, spirit the greater with our diminishing might, right? So like, as your strength is getting less, your bodily or your resources, your actual physical energy, like your, your conviction grows, right? And I'm not trying to say that I was heroic in, in doing that. It's just a, a label for the value in the sense that, and I look back at that and say, ah, oh, it's not, I, I wouldn't call that term Protestant work ethic, especially in England, right? Because it, I, that isn't really even Protestant. There is a church hierarchy. They are uh, participating in the, the rituals still occur, right? Like the Catholic Church, at least for the people that are in the Church of England back then. So I wouldn't call it Protestant work ethic. I think it's connected to this idea or this value, this uh, these patterns of behavior that's in, like you could also call it Dunkirk spirit, right? It's uh, that bleak heroic necessity is the same sort of thing. Like the more the situation um, becomes bleak, the more there is a kind of spirit that rises. And when you put those two things together with a kind of Christian, and you add a Christian value to that as well, it adds, adds a sort of, you can trigger both. Like you can have the hope as well. You can have the agape, the uh, forgiving, the giving before, as you see in the blitz, spirit of the blitz of people helping each other, right? There's a forgiving melded with that. It's not just sort of the, de the death and glory, but mixed together it has that great effect and many others that i'll go through at different times and talk about other people demonstrating these patterns of behavior you will be impelled towards it it's like theoden when he does this charge on the battle and it's like anyway, knowing that they're going to lose knowing that they're going to die so that that charge represents the same thing i've talked about it before thinking about things that are similar all the behaviors are like churchill right he's talking about a bloody mess dying in the bloody mess on the ground uh that, uh, and then that sort of spirit that summoned in the people that spirit of resistance that's bleak heroic necessity as well but it's like what would happen after that after we lost right what would it be like if the nazis took over the place and you'll become an exiled one in your own country all your most sacred things the great things you love will be destroyed and churchill does sort of represent that in that speech when he says the nazis marching down the main square buckingham palace bombed to the ground Nazi flags hanging on Buckingham Palace, right? An alien thing. The exiled one talks about this sort of thing too. Is that 
I'd hoped to find someone that was like that understood the context of where I came from because it's all destroyed. But I, but I can't find that. I can't have that. There's sort of these other people don't have that context. My people have been destroyed, and that's what you'll have there, right? If the Nazis took over, you got Nazi flags everywhere. You have no one that understands your sacred symbols, understood the needs of the of the dragoon guard to do their ceremonies, their practices in the context of that that community. And Churchill is sort of tapping into that implicitly perhaps but by by saying really as a window he's giving you a window just like this exile is to the world post-annihilation if you don't have not of this value set you might look at that and go these, these people are irrational but if you have a connection to this grim bleak heroic necessity this kind of worldview that comes from this epoch of the dragon that i talk about it's the most rational thing in the world to you to do that in that situation when slavery is rising, when people are trying to offer you golden chains, those people who are offering the golden chains go, why don't these people just surrender? Why don't these people just take it? Why don't they just, you know, just, just give up? And from our perspective, that's the last thing. I could think of nothing worse than that. Of course we'll never surrender, right? Of course we'll never surrender. That's the, that's the narrative order. That's how we operate like that's the most that's the highest good at this point right that's the that's what we're supposed this is how things are supposed to be that's what we're looking at here too is like what are the practices that we can take from these well like what's going on here and there might be something in here that's kind of like the stoic one uh, that we can put on the greenwood as the part of the greenwood project to experiment with to unpack an experiment with using and doing this philosopher this poet philosopher that's in this does sort of talk about that is this, um, if decisions are irreversible, before you make them, you must do the practices of this wisdom, I would say, till you're wise, till you ask yourselves these questions, until you read works like these, the exile, until you see outside of your perspective where these both enacted metaphors and symbols. The monks used to do this. The monks used to do it in um, monasteries. It's they communally read stuff together, and that's what we're going to do lots more of too. I'm, like Marcus Aurelius with the meditations, they are not a list of things or just his diary. The beauty of it is seeing the practices he's doing. Right? Socratic dialogue is, is a thing you can internalize. It's kind of what he's recommending here. He's saying, I meditated on this. And is wise to meditate on like, where's the horse and the rider? Where's the hall gone? Where's this? That's Socrates. There's Socrates in that, even though he wouldn't have known of Socrates, right? But it's like that. There's Socrates in that. It's asking yourself these questions, playing the wise sage in your own mind, internalizing, going through the same exercise, right? The students of Plato, I can't remember his name, but uh, he talked about the, what, what I really learned for him is how to talk to myself. And he didn't mean just yappering on, that yappering on that's in the back of your mind. He meant learning to... Uh, internalize the sage, internalize um, Socrates, how to ask myself questions like this guy is asking himself these key questions. And like the Stoics participating in this, imagining if your son died, imagine if this, and so you properly attribute value to what you have now. That's a wisdom practice for what you could lose. That's what it's saying, because you could live in this world. This world's coming, right? And the young, youthful men don't consider these things, but if you do these practices, you might see this because that's what's coming, because that's the cosmology in the worldview, right? You don't see it when you're in the mead hall and you run off to fight these battles because it's not enough just to say, don't do this, don't be too hasty, don't be, how? 
how do I do that? Well, well, that's kind of like the golden mean. That's like the golden mean. Rationality. Like that's what rationality means, right? Rationed. Rationed use. But just doing the middle bit, the average, the golden mean isn't an average. It's the it's the practices that give you a ratioality. So you can respond. Like say you need to do extreme fighting. And at one point you might need to use your weapon. And that's that's one area of your life you need to devote all your time to suddenly. That's golden mean. It's knowing. It's like knowing when to respond to things. If you do sort of the practices he's talking about, if you're at least asking these questions, that's kind of a stoic way as well. That's what the stoics did, as I mentioned, Marcus Aurelius, of seeing this golden mean of what you should value, what's relevant to change, right? And ultimately, think about your death and the death of the things you love. You're going to think, ah, that's what I need to protect. You're not going to, because that's the danger of living in the epoch of the Greenwood, is that everything's good. You don't know, ah, it's never going to go away, or is it? Until there's a war and the annihilation of everything you loved. And you can see, okay, with COVID, guys, your lives have changed. A lot of people feel, and I'm sure they feel that, I know I do as well, is that like it was the year that was taken from you, right? Things can be taken away from you very quickly, and I hope everyone realizes that. And I think that's the great use of texts like these. It is opening you a window to see it before it happens. Like the Stoics said, uh, use a cup for a while until it like, becomes your favorite cup and then smash it. What's that do, right? It's like meaning is separated from the things. Meaning is separated from the actual objects uh, that it's an, a layer put on things. And that may, helps you realize that and then see through bullshit so you can see what is really valuable. Asking these questions, imagining, reading verse like this can teach you can open a window to the situation so you see through bullshit to this. And this sort of verse is a, itself is a symbol of that. What a symbol is, it's a window to another world. I think you can see the constituent pieces there, like the negative experiences that you know what it's like to lose certain things in your life. And it's enough when you bring all those metaphors together and you have enough context to see what it is like, this Ragnarok is like, right? And then it serves as a warning. It's like, you better understand what this is like because it's coming, right? Like the, think about the word realize. It helps you realize to see it in a real, ah, that's what it would be like. That makes it real for you for a second, right? All these metaphors, these symbol makes it real. Uh, it's not just a propositional description. It gives you a kind of perspectival understanding. When you have all these metaphors put together, you sort of start imagining what it is like. And that's why you feel the weight of it, the weight of this, this what this guy's going through. Um, as it's described. Remember, it's a symbol too. Think about it in the context of your own understanding of what it means, your own life. Uh, mind. Ask yourself questions of the things in your life that you'd lose. Then you might be wise enough to make irreversible decisions about perhaps war or what you should cherish. And I think I'll even take that practice myself away from it, away from this, and try it myself. Is Before I make the next irreversible decision, I'm going to do that. If we actually enacted these practices, what would it achieve? You're actually imagining a situation where you are the exile. You're going to be thankful and you're going to be grateful for all the things that are working. Also, you're going to appreciate the dangers. You're going to, it's going to constantly um, give you re-evaluation of what's relevant, right? See, I'm just thinking here out loud I haven't looked and analyzed what that would do, but that's what it seems to me, is that if you think about the loss of all those things, 
if you think about the context, it's going to help you get to that that golden golden balance. If you did it too much, you'd be constantly in fear of this happening. But you know, if you did it once a month or once a week or something like that, I could see this. I think it would impel you and charge you uh, to defend when the real threats arise. So there's practices inside it in the sense that the questions you might ask yourself, but there's also practices in the act of reading and contemplating the, uh, the verse itself. And I might just finally add, too, in thinking about why this thing is actually inspiring when you read this, it gives you energy rather than making you depressed. Like It's comforting to know that in that situation that you might find in your own life, the situation we all find ourselves in, the enemies growing around us and darkness encroaching, We've dealt with that before. We've experienced this epoch of the dragon before. We've experienced this before. We know how to deal with this, and people have gone through this. And there's a narrative order that is perfect for it. Puts the situation in context of instead of feeling like nihilism, like oh, we're in decline, and nihilism is like no, no, no. This has happened before. We have the arsenal to deal with it, and the weapons that can be marshaled, and the inner weapons, and the inner hearth, and the wellspring, and power that is within the storied past, as Tennyson talks about. You know, I think out of COVID, like I would say to everyone, out of COVID, we should be sail away from safe harbor, explore, discover. Like there's a grand tradition that is not over behind you, even made for facing apocalypse. Like now is the hour to believe, dare greatly to believe, start a new business become more virtuous? What are the practices we can put into place to make myself more, to move forward, to aspire and do great things? We can do great things. None of this is over. Never is. That's the spirit of the thing, that it looks like it's over. That's when we just get started. The believe in a determined future, that we can make it better than our past, that we're not in decline, that even if we are, that's perfect. That's the perfect situation for us to marshal our impulsions towards great success and vision and daring greatly to believe in that. God bless you and speak to you next time.